addressing Michigan's public policy through a research lens. Facts Matter is brought to you by the Citizens Research Council of Michigan, a 105-year-old independent nonprofit research organization that provides unbiased information on the significant issues concerning state and local government organization and finance. Our research can be found at crcmich.org. Now, let's dive into the facts that matter. Welcome back to another edition of Facts Matter. My name is Joe Steele, and today uh, we're speaking with research associate Tim Mischling from the Citizens Research Council of Michigan. Tim, thanks for sharing some time with us again today. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate it. So the Research Council just released a report on the youth mental health crisis and school-based health services, uh, which took a deep dive into the mental health of our Michigan students and the access they either have or don't have to mental health services, as well as some policy options to help head off this, what's turning out to be an epidemic. Um, the report's up and available for folks that wanna take a look at it at uh, the Research Council website at crcmich.org. Um, but it is a complex issue and a very thorough report. So I wanna start with the overview, uh, Tim. Uh, in general, what did you find in your research in terms of the problems and any possible solutions? Yeah, so as you mentioned, it's a it's a complex issue, but we're seeing high rates of a variety of behavioral health disorders throughout Michigan among uh, children and adolescents. So depression, anxiety, substance use disorders, and unfortunately, even an increase in youth suicide. Corresponding with that, we have a lot of barriers to treatment. There are a lot of parts of the state that don't have behavioral health providers um, and, and other barriers that we see like insurance access and social stigma. So, uh, you know, we've, we've heard about the, the COVID-19 pandemic and, and how much that uh, has caused uh, mental health concerns amongst, uh, amongst people. Um, but this, as reported, has been going on for a little bit longer than that, uh, even a lot longer than that. What have you, what have you, what did you find in terms of the, uh, the mental health status of our students even going back years? Yeah, so there's, there's been a lot of uh, reporting done on mental health issues during COVID, not only for children, but for adults as well. Um, and certainly we've seen some of that. Um, there's a there's a temporal association with the start of COVID and increases in, in mental health strain, uh, but it's hard to parse that out from other things going on at the same time, the, the corresponding economic challenges, um, the social conditions and political conditions in the country, all of those things factor in as well as, you know, people's experiences leading up to it. What we see in our research when we look at youth, however, is that while there are certainly problems that have occurred over the last year and a half uh, during the coronavirus pandemic, um, this goes back a long time from 2008 to 2018. In that decade, uh, major depressive episodes nearly doubled among 12 to 17 year olds. And as that age cohort, you know, increases in, in age, we see a, a subsequent corresponding increase in major depressive episodes among 18 to 25 year olds. Um, looking back to 2000, uh, from the year 2000 to 2018, which again, that's the year uh, for which the most recent data is that we have available, um, there is a 70% increase in suicide uh, the rate of suicide among 10 to 24 year olds. And so um, we've seen these problems increasing for a long time. Uh, and it, it, there's a there's a danger in looking at 
the rate of depression and the rate of suicide in a single year and saying, well, what happened that year that caused this? Because what we right. understand about mental health is that, you know, there's a, there's a genetic component in terms of susceptibility and people have a lifetime of exposures and different factors that affect their health. And so even looking at youth in 20, 2008 to 2018, you know, these are kids that were, you know, maybe growing up in the in the 90s into the the 2000s. And so we've seen a lot of things uh, over that period in terms of issues with income inequality, intergenerational income elasticity, the post 9-11 world, uh, you know, a couple economic recessions, various political and, and social factors going on, as well as possible changes in sleep, nutrition, um, and other factors in the way people socialize, all of that plays into the development of a, of a behavioral health disorder. Yeah, you led right into a question I was gonna spring on you, which was if there was a reason you know, why uh, we could, is if there was a consistent theme over the course of those 20 years, but I think you might have touched on it with just all of the, all of the things around the world and, and, and across the country that this age group, as they have, have gotten older and, and, and grown into adulthood, have experienced, you mentioned even going back to, to 9-11 and, and 2001 and, and the recessions and, and pandemics that, that folks have experienced uh, between then and now. Yeah, you know, it's easy to, you know, throughout time, we see, you know, what's wrong with the kids. That's a, you know, a theme all the way back over 100 years ago to Reefer Madness, um, you know, and it's it's the rock music, it's the video games, it's the cell phones, you know, we have all of these things that we like to find a single boogeyman and, and blame it on, you know, in terms of the cell phones, I think, you know, there's certainly some research that, you know, overuse of social media can have a negative right. effect on on adolescent mental health. That amount of screen time, if it impairs sleep quality and the amount of sleep kids are getting, that's going to affect their mental health too. So there, you know, there's some validity to that. But I think the point I'm trying to get across is that these are complex things that have to do with genetics, with physical health, uh, with, and we know the major risk factors like childhood trauma um, or other traumatic experiences and chronic stress, that's, that's a major thing. And so when we look at the prevalence of adverse childhood experiences, um, which are major traumatic events in, in children's lives, like a divorce or experience of, of violence or neglect or abuse, um, the cumulative effect of those things um, dramatically increases a person's susceptibility to depression and anxiety later in life. And sometimes those things don't manifest until adolescence. Uh, so it, it really is complex. And because it's such a complex problem, it takes some pretty complex solutions to address. And to, to add the complexity, you know, we were talking offline uh, before we started recording this, that uh, it uh, suicide is the number two uh, cause of death amongst uh, youth uh, in, uh, in in the country and, and not far behind uh, automobile accidents, which is number one. But you actually referenced something interesting about automobile accidents and how some of that might be loosely tied to, or maybe not even loosely, but tied to um, uh, mental health uh, uh, concerns and, and, and things that are going on uh, with, a, with a driver's mental health at that age. Yeah, so it's suicide... In, in recent decades surpassed homicide as the number two cause of death among young people. And I don't know if that's a cause for celebration or not, that 
we have more suicides and fewer homicides. But in terms of the the automobile accidents, certainly inexperienced drivers and road conditions factor into that you know vehicle mortality. But we also do see that alcohol and illicit drugs play a role in some of those accidents and the risk of fatality, um, as well as other mental health issues can factor into a person's driving behavior. Um, and there are also some reporting issues when you see an auto accident um, in determining was it an accident or was it intentional um, and determining whether something was you know, an accidental death or a suicide is sometimes complicated for a variety mm -hmm. of reasons. So we talked a little bit about some of the uh, um, life experiences that may enter into uh, mental health issues that people might experience, well, uh, you know, early childhood traumas, things like that. Uh, but demographics also play a role in how uh, they are addressed uh, in this state. And that's touched on a little bit in this report as well in terms of how uh, folks are, uh, can access uh, support, uh, where those support services might be. Uh, can you explain a little bit about that and the differences there are between uh, you know, groups or, or areas of the state as it relates to uh, support services? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that we see that is maybe not surprising, but certainly concerning is that um, there are behavioral health provider shortages throughout most of the state. Um, but those tend to be especially pronounced in rural areas of the state where mm -hmm. there are many counties that have no child psychiatrists, no PhD, PhD level psychologists in the entire county. Uh, they may have very few providers. Um, and when you see that some of those counties also tend to be lower income, uh, there can be a lot of transportation barriers and, mm -hmm. and other barriers to access to treatment um, within, within rural counties. We see a lot of differences too in the level of exposure to those risk factors. So mental health issues affect everyone and they're, they're important health issues to understand, but people who are of lower socioeconomic status tend to live in neighborhoods where you see clusters of risk factors like violence, poverty, um, right. things that happen in the household, like those adverse childhood experiences. So you have a corresponding increase in risk with a lack of access to services. And that doesn't even take you know, preventative strategies into account in, in how we invest in prevention as opposed to treatment, because the ideal situation is to prevent exposure to those risk factors so that people don't need treatment later in life. Well, let's, let's, let's go there then, because, you know, the higher uh, the risk and the lower access to support uh, isn't a great scenario. So what can we do? Um, it was mentioned in the report that this is going to take uh, a lot of coordination between healthcare providers, community-based organizations, schools, public officials, um, all of those groups working together. Um, so what can we do to, uh, to get those groups to work together and come up with a solution, A, for uh, uh, treatment uh, for uh, folks that are already undergoing these sorts of challenges, but also, as you mentioned, on the preventative side. I'm not sure which comes first, uh, but how do, we, how do we address either one of those? 
Yeah, well, you know, as you alluded to, there's no silver bullet. And certainly the state has a lot of work to do in terms of increasing the number of behavioral health providers we have in the state. And, you know, there are different strategies that, you know, governments have tried to do that, which include loan repayment uh, programs for people that study in a specific field of medicine or healthcare or in social work or psychology. Um, incentives for folks to practice in underserved areas, um, recruitment strategies for training programs to recruit people from, you know, rural areas of the state or from underrepresented uh, demographic groups uh, because they'll be more likely to, to go and practice. So there are a lot of strategies in terms of the supply side um, and on the demand side of the equation. Uh, it's really important that we as a state come together to address not only the sort of structural barriers like insurance coverage and cost and transportation to access services, but also the social barriers like stigma um, and, you know, people's perception of mental health disorders as a personal failing rather than a complex um, societal and biological neurological phenomenon. When you look at the research, oftentimes um, in studies of youth depression or youth suicide, individuals didn't wanna seek treatment because they thought it was a sign of personal weakness or they were afraid of what their friends or family would think of them, or they thought that they could handle things um, themselves. But of course, untreated things tend to get worse and you pass a, a threshold where you you can't handle it any longer and so policies whether it's information campaigns or whether it's something that's maybe not a public policy but something that we do collectively in a grassroots way addressing stigma is a big part of that as well yeah I mean, it seems like there's been some work done recently with celebrities sports uh stars for example coming out and saying hey you know this was a challenge that i uh faced and and it's not uh it shouldn't be stigmatized it's not a, a something that that uh was a failing on on my side but uh uh but like you said you know could could be any number of reasons why uh someone is faced with those challenges uh the re in the report you mentioned uh in a lot of discussion around us a solution uh, idea, uh, which is, you know, nesting um, or expanding uh, support services within the school-based health centers. Um, obviously, that would take some, some funding or take some support and coordination, as I mentioned, between the state public officials and the schools and uh, the health organizations to, to put those together. Um, we know that, um, you know, we've been reported on this in the podcast previously. There's been a lot of news reports recently about the state's finances and, and the amount of uh, surplus funding and, and funding from the federal government that they have, that they're trying to figure out what to do with, uh, with this funding. So uh, where does an idea like that, the school-based health centers and expansion and expanding them uh, fall into the, the state budget puzzle? Yeah, so when you, when you look at a state budget, obviously, we want to use public dollars in ways that serve the public, if, efficiently and effectively and you know any budget that you make is a statement of priorities and I think that there's a strong argument to make youth mental health a priority because it not only affects 
people early in their lifespan, but follows them into adulthood. And so the youth mental health is a strong predictor, not only for academic achievement, um, but also occupational and social and familial success and fulfillment later in life, as well as on the other side, um, people who are filtered into either the juvenile justice or criminal justice system later in life. And so investing the money upfront, I think, is a wise investment. Um, and schools specifically, because this is a place where we can get ahead of disorders before they manifest. It's a place where we can provide not only treatment, but like I mentioned, prevention. So you can take what's often referred to as a multi-tiered approach where you have support services and social emotional learning and other things that benefit all students to keep them healthy so that they don't develop a disorder. You have screenings for students so you can catch warning signs early before things go out of control. And then you have more intensive services for students who need them. Um, and there are different avenues to do this. One of them that you mentioned is the school-based health centers, along with having more school health personnel like nurses, social workers, and, and psychologists. Yeah, I mean, just, just looking at the numbers, again, I encourage people to go onto the website and view this report, just looking at the numbers of folks that are impacted by, uh, by mental illness uh, on the youth side, particularly eye-opening, um, and you know, reported the third of Michigan youth with mental illness are not receiving care, but I'd imagine that most of those folks are in school and, and the schools see these students each and every day. So uh, have the opportunity to kind of see and, and, and interact with them in a way that could provide a, either support, um, uh, you know, prevention or, or care, uh, uh, one or the other or both. Um, so it seems like uh, schools might be, uh, might be the way to go. Yeah, and as you mentioned, you know, things cost money. And so right. this does have to be a budget priority, but schools are fortunate in, in some ways in the ability that they can braid different funding mechanisms together. And we are uh, in some ways flush with cash at the state, you know, in a way that we haven't been in a while. And we also have access now to new reimbursement through Medicaid that can pay for some of this treatment that happens on site with schools. And so um, it's really a matter of both our state and local policymakers making this a priority. And I think that when you look at the scope of how many youth this affects um, throughout the state and the rate of growth that addressing this in an, an incremental way isn't gonna get us in front of the problem, particularly when we're so far behind in having the bare bones access to treatment as opposed to, we're not even looking at aspirational solutions. We're looking at maintaining our basic commitment to have enough school nurses and have enough psychologists and have enough health providers within communities right. so people can even choose to get treatment. Right, well, good. Well, thank you very much, uh, Tim, a good report. Uh, in depth, I encourage everyone to log on to to take a look at it. As I mentioned, it is eye opening. Some of the numbers there. So you mentioned budgeting is a priority, and and uh, we'll see how the state uh, handles this uh, surplus and some of the federal uh, funding going forward. Um, I do want to change gears uh, real quickly, though, to uh, to talk about the largest community in the state. Um, I want to bring in Eric Lufer, the president of the Citizens Research Council of Michigan, to talk about uh, the newly opened. Uh, Detroit Bureau of the uh, Research Council. Uh, so Eric, uh, 
let's let's hear what's going on with uh, with Detroit and the and the bureau you have going on down there. Yeah, hi Joe. It's good to see you again. Or good to see talk you, to you again. Um, so the Citizens Research Council is now 105 years old, and when you go back to the very beginning, we started off as the Detroit Bureau of Governmental Research. Uh, at that time, the city of Detroit was growing uh, sort of exponentially faster than a lot of the city leaders knew what to do with, the civic leaders and so on. So the idea of taking an organization like ours that had existed in other cities and bringing it to Michigan, uh, sort of the, the germ of an idea and, and we helped the city grow in a lot of ways in the 1950s became a statewide organization, um, but still throughout the years focused on the city of Detroit, the Detroit school system, everything going on with, the, with our biggest city. Mm -hmm. uh, now with the help of the Kresge Foundation and with uh, hopefully a few other foundations joining in, we're relaunching that effort, re, you know, creating a new focus to uh, keep an eye on the city of Detroit. Um, and and we've, we've launched that. Uh, I wanna introduce Esmok, Esmok Isag Osman, uh, who is our research associate focused on the city. And it just worked out timing wise that uh, him coming on board and the Detroit City Charter Commission winding up their uh, their efforts to write a new city charter come together at once. So uh, we want to have Esmat talk a little bit about what he's been doing, looking at that draft charter, and and maybe starting off with the question of whether that'll even appear on the ballot in the first place. Yeah, Esmat, welcome. Thank you, thank you, Joe, and thank you, Eric. Uh, it is a pleasure and an honor to be a part of the Citizens Research Council and and uh, be a researcher for the city that I've lived in for almost a decade now. Uh, been involved in um, almost every civic space in Detroit, uh, coming down to policy, to uh, being an educator at Wayne State, to working on campaigns in the city. And so what I've been working on uh, for the Citizens Research Council is uh, the this proposed uh, city charter by the Detroit uh, Charter Revision Commission. And right now, uh, that is um, the, the ruling as to whether or not the city charter, the question for voters to vote on whether approving it or declining it is at the Supreme Court after being embroiled in a legal battle uh, for almost a month now, um, actually about three weeks. Uh, and so we are just waiting right now for the Supreme Court to rule as to whether or not the charter question will be presented to voters uh, at the August 3rd primary election. Um, but, you know, a lot of the uh, in, in analyzing and going through a lot of the propositions within the city charter, within the proposed city charter, um, you know, a lot of the proposed provisions and policy ideas are extremely important in terms of what a lot of Detroiters have uh, have proposed to the Charter Commission and what the Charter Commission has drafted. Um, a lot of it, a lot of it, just comes down to whether procedurally and financially um, these provisions are 
um, appropriate for city charter, which is essentially like a city's constitution. And so, um, you know, we are just waiting here at the organization to see whether or not this, uh, whether the question will be on the ballot. We do have a report that uh, is almost ready to go that we are ready to, uh, that we would be publishing if in fact the ballot question is ruled, <clears throat> excuse me, is ruled to be on the ballot, is ruled to be on the ballot. And um, it is just an honor to be here uh, and, and be the Detroit researcher for the Citizens Research Council. Awesome, thank you very much for that update. Does it still physically have time to get on the on the ballot uh, because these, you know, August third primary. I know the ballot had to be um, approved and, and solidified. There's a June one deadline. We're obviously past that. Does it does it time have time to be physically printed on on the ballot for August third? Yeah. So it so it will be like you mentioned. June first was the deadline as to when um, when the question was supposed to be certified and, and printed off to be on the absentee ballots. If in fact the Supreme Court rules that uh, the charter question cannot be on the ballot, uh, we will still see the ballot question on the ballot, the charter question on the ballot, it will just be void um, in terms okay. of voters being able to vote for it. So that might bring about some confusion in itself, but um, this whole process has been a little bit confusing to begin with. Right, and uh, one more question for you. Are there any um, specific touch points that are, uh, that are really under, you know, that are really under concern or under evaluation uh, in terms of the proposed uh, charter amendments? You mentioned um, some of the things, are they appropriate for, for cities to do? Are there specific, a couple of specific items you could highlight for us? Yeah, so, so um, there are certain provisions uh, that uh, seem to be overly prescriptive in terms of being uh, a, a guiding framework for a city to be able to operate and function as a government. One of those being um, giving specific departments specific directives as to how to, uh, as to certain policy that they must um, enact or certain policy that, uh, you know, that operating department should uh, pursue. And so whenever you have policy directives that are that prescriptive, it pr constrains government from being able to adapt to changing times or things that might happen in the future because these documents stay, um, the city charter, for example, stays in place for about 16 years, right? Mm -hmm. Unless brought forth by the voters to, uh, to amend it earlier. Um, and so certain provisions, and there, there are countless provisions, but um, certain provisions that give just too much directive uh, such as uh, the funding for the Charles H. Wright Museum. Uh, there is a $350,000 annual uh, funding price that the city charter, or that the proposed city charter um, is asking the city to provide, which is too prescriptive uh, for, for a city charter. That should be something that is usually um, done by ordinance process right. or. Right figured out in that manner. Got it. Well, as, as you noted, there's a, there's a blog about the, uh, the, up, the, uh, the, the status here and, and uh, less than 200 people uh, voted in the majority to pass this uh, commission uh, revision back in 2018. So it goes to show you that uh, every vote uh, counts, especially in a city as big as Detroit, less than 200 people voted in the majority there. So 
Well, thank you very much. We look forward to uh, hearing Absolutely. more about the city of Detroit and what's going on as you report out of the Detroit Bureau. So, uh, so thank you very much uh, for that, Tim. Thank you very much for your uh, comments on the youth mental health uh, report. Look forward to uh, folks downloading and reviewing that. Uh, Eric and Esmat, thank you very much for, uh, for your uh, introductions about uh, the Detroit Bureau and what's going on with the City uh, Charter Commission. So thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, Joe. Take care. Along with this podcast, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan produces blogs, research papers, op-eds, and other resources to better inform Michigan citizens and policymakers. As an independent nonprofit, our work is funded by Michigan corporations, foundations, and individuals like yourself. If you like what you've heard, please consider making a donation by visiting crcmich.org and clicking on Get Involved. Thank you for your support.